This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome. In our next several episodes, we shall examine all things Marshall for waging the Second Seminole War. And who better to take us along on this journey than Jesse Marshall, our living historian and smart guy about all things Marshall related in this long conflict. In succeeding episodes, Jesse Marshall describes the weapons soldiers in Seminole wielded, the battle tactics they unleashed on each other, the heated arguments among generals waging the war, the idea behind a decisive battle, one that could end the Second Seminole War in one bloody engagement, and, when decisive battles failed, the ploys the Army employed for subduing Seminole for deportation to Oklahoma. We will tackle all these things in coming episodes and get into the right to keep and bear arms and its impact on this war. But for this episode, Jesse Marshall looks back to the origins of the militia and the Congress's establishment of the regular army and how each fared separately on the battlefield and in joint action against the Seminole. Jesse Marshall explains why this distinction between the regulars and the militia mattered when the federal government ordered the U.S. Army to forcibly remove the Seminole from Florida Territory in 1835. Militia from Florida and volunteers from the several states aided the Army in carrying out this controversial task. Which was more effective in their operations? Which consisted of better marksmen? Which employed better military tactics? which had better all-around training, which supplied their men better. And, possibly most importantly, how did this Seminole respond militarily to this? Jesse Marshall addresses all these questions and posits informed answers that explain the mechanics behind fielding military forces, how America's exceptional founding influenced the evolution of both its army and its militia in ways different and sometimes similar to European armies, and how its limitations in quality of armaments and caliber of soldiers severely reduced its overall effectiveness in its task of Seminole Indian removal. One programming note, after more than two years interviewing public and academic historians, archeologists, archivists, catalogers, artists, musicians, and many other guests from various walks of life, we felt a name change was warranted to reflect that breadth of knowledge and experience and yes, authority. Hence, in the podcasting world, we are indeed the Seminole Wars Authority. Our new bumper music brings a martial immediacy to each episode, providing military flair and snare to our proceedings. So let's get started with the martial art of war with Jesse Marshall. Welcome back to the Seminole Wars Authority. Glad to join you. Jesse, we've had a tension in America between the militia and the regular army ever since at least the Battle of Bunker Hill in 1775. We've had grave political disputes over which of these military arms is best suited to defend the interests of the nation. How did our political leaders in the early republic bridge these differences? The militia was brought to the fore as a force to contend against regular British troops on many occasions during the American Revolution. And while today it's often pointed out to us that the militia was not capable of fighting regular British troops to advantage in the conventional sense, and that's largely true, the militia 
could find ways to defeat regular military forces through partisan warfare, for example. But we see in the revolution plenty of examples of American militia fighting British regulars in their own way, between Bunker Hill, Battle of Great Bridge in Virginia, etc. And one of the goals that Washington had particularly was to improve the American militia to the point where the American militia would be a match for European regular troops in conventional combat. Washington's plan was to form a select corps of militia. In other words, after the 1792 law that brought every man 18 to 45 into the militia system of their state, subject to the drill and training established by Congress, it was Washington's idea that they form a select corps, and with the Secretary of War Knox, they believed that they could even replace the regular army by the select corps of the militia. In other words, if the militia were to form not standing units, but essentially rotate units in a standing capacity with young men of military age and capability serving several months at a time minimum in fortresses, etc., and rotating that duty over a period of three or four years, perhaps, so that there could be a force of two or 300,000 extraordinarily well-trained and equipped, something like our modern National Guard, but not quite the same thing. In Washington's view, that would have prevented the need to even establish a regular army. Now, that never came to pass because in the emergency of the Northwestern Indian Wars of the 1790s, regular troops were required. They had to go with what they could get. They had raw levies of militia, and they had poorly organized, essentially newly organized regular formation uh, fighting in the Northwest. But Washington's goal was never forgotten. In fact, the last I seen of it referenced was in the 1830s. The Army's commanding general-in-chief, Alexander Maycomb, who passed away in that office uh, 1840 or 41, he may have achieved that position in part because he had actually written out a plan on how to reduce the regular army, potentially, while forming a select corps of militia to replace it as a disciplined <clears throat> conventional combat arm of United States defense. Again, essentially, as a young man, you would serve actively in it, and after a few years of activity, you would then pass into the standard militia, yeah. you know, where you might muster once every few months as essentially a reserve. Constitution is clear, the militia clause, etc., that the federal government can have an army and navy if it wants to, but the militia is an established fact. So the question is, what do you do with the militia? That's why I guess Washington and Knox thought, well, since the militia is established and is permanent, then we might as well rely upon it. This may be one of the rare instances when we make a necessity out of virtue. The Congress didn't want a standing army. There was a militia available. They were happy to rely upon it. That is essentially correct, Patrick, but one of the things that I've started to notice as I read a variety of, of newspapers and other things from the period is that a lot of the very people that claim that they didn't want a larger standing army, you'd think that they would then turn around and support the select core plan of the militia to replace the regular army, wouldn't you? But it was precisely the Jeffersonian who resisted the select core idea. Without meaning to sound overly critical, because it's just how things happen, the Jeffersonians who boohooed the regulars were the ones that needed them, because they're the ones expanding the country through the Louisiana Purchase, and see what I mean? Yeah, but the governors controlled their state militias and didn't necessarily want it going off into other states' territory or into non-state 
That is true, but again, 1792 law, the Militia Act, laid the groundwork, and I think Washington's plan was the intent of the 1792 law was to lead up to it. But Washington's plan was never adopted because the Jeffersonians, Jefferson and others, opposed it. While they kept saying that we'll form a huge standing army, well, it wouldn't have been a standing army in the sense that it's a component of the militia. It would have just created a Minuteman force of two or 300,000 men who had been trained to a level to actually approximate that of European regulars. Under the 1795 law, for the militia clause, if the president called the militia out particularly, they would be federalized, and then they're under the president's authority. Still, that law was no panacea that automatically converted the mindset of people from a state militia into acting as though they were part of the federal force, fighting for federal aims. The president could tell them they were federalized, but in their hearts they still felt like they were the home team fighting for the home team, their state. To go back to the War of 1812, the militias of the northern states were called out to invade Canada. And many of the militiamen that even did turn out said, we're not going to cross the Niagara River. And the general says, what do you mean? And he says, well, yeah, we're in federal service, we understand, but the Constitution is clear. We're to serve the federal government to suppress insurrection, to enforce the laws, and to repel invasions. That's what the Constitution says. It doesn't say anything about invading Canada. (laughs) All of a sudden, Madison, particularly in 1812, ran into this recognition that many of the militiamen were aware of their limitations on even the federal government to employ them as a war-fighting force. The militia turnouts were poor, and there was confusion about these issues. So the result was the Volunteer Act. The way it was initially organized, let's say that there was a threat against the town of Newport, Rhode Island, like the British were hovering around it. There would be a county regiment. Usually the regiments were organized by counties in the militia, even in territorial Florida. The president could immediately call on the governor and say, I need you to muster the regiment of militia around Newport, and I'm going to federalize for three months of active duty to defend the town. That's theoretically how it would work. Because the War of 1812 was not universally popular, and because there was confusion, and because there had been a lackadaisical enforcement of the militia law, They would call out a regiment, and out of 500 men on the muster rolls, maybe 120 would actually show up. That was a problem. And then of the 120, let's say the regiment's going to cross the Niagara to reinforce Scott troops at the fighting at Queenston Heights, and half of them go, well, we're not here to invade Canada. That's unconstitutional. And so you only have 60 men willing to essentially volunteer to go into Canada to fight, right? So they just went with that passed the Volunteer Act, where the president could just say to the governor, instead of calling out the 3rd Regiment of Rhode Island Militia, he would say to the Rhode Island governor, I need 800 men from your militia. And since it's likely that no one regiment would muster with its full number of men, the governor would then call for volunteers to enroll in the volunteer unit for federal service. You would have men from many different militia units mustering to volunteer to serve in this federal volunteer unit, like the 1st New Hampshire Volunteers of 1814, 750, 800 men. The governor called for volunteers to join it. He didn't call out a whole regiment and say, you must muster and you will be mustered in, because he knew any regiment he called, he would have resistance and the turnout would be poor. So instead, they just started to call for volunteers who would actually show up. 
that's the origin of the volunteer system that found its apogee in the war between the states, fought almost entirely by volunteer units on both sides. So how did the U.S. Army deal with this in practice? One of the things that the U.S. military attempted to do during the 1830s was there was a continuing effort to use militia less in federal service and to instead employ militia in the form of volunteer troops. You see, troop volunteers that were taken from the militia would be organized into brand new units that would be full strength, and they would elect their own officers, new captains, new lieutenants, etc., sergeants. And these volunteer units basically made up from scratch from among the existing militia organization. Once they were mustered into federal service as volunteers, they are technically troops. They are under the war powers of the federal government through the Constitution. When militia is called forth, as the Constitution refers to it, it is called forth as militia. In other words, the president called forth the 1st Brigade of Florida Territorial Militia, then it would, however well or badly organized it happened to be, it was immediately in federal service. But that could mean that the companies were half-strength you know, or less, and they might even be over large. But the advantage that the federal government felt from using volunteers was that by calling for, say, a regiment of volunteers from the 1st Brigade, they could guarantee that that volunteer unit would be organized at full strength. In other words, every company would have about 50 soldiers, a captain, two lieutenants, a drummer, etc. So it would be at full strength the moment it was mustered in. And that was considered an advantage, and obviously was, because at this time, even the regular army couldn't maintain full-strength companies. It was a complaint of General Clinch that the regular companies that comprised Fanning's battalion at the Battle of Wilkocucci were not only under strength, with some of the companies mustering barely 20 effectives, but almost every company had only a single officer to command it. No platoon officers, for example, you know, subaltern lieutenants to command separate platoons in skirmish order. So when the officers were shot at Wizlacoochee, uh, some of the companies fell into the hands of non-commissioned officers who had to carry them through the combat. What practices did the Second Seminole War reinforce then? What the Seminole War reinforced was the interest of the federal government of abandoning the use of militia in federal service and relying more upon calling on the governors to supply volunteer corps. And they would usually rely upon the governors to determine from which militia units to derive the components of these volunteer corps. Under the law of the federal government of 1795, you see, the U.S. president didn't need to go through the governors to give orders to militia units. Within the laws, his jurisdiction, the president could call upon any militia officer in the United States without consulting the governor. He could call them forth in the federal service. But again, the, the issue there was that when they did, the companies may not be perfectly organized. That was, considered, that was especially found to be an issue during the War of 1812. And it was also an issue during the Seminole War. In the war with Mexico, of course, Almost all the units that fought in that war had to be transported across the continent or across the Gulf of Mexico. And so very few American militia engaged in active duty in the war with Mexico. Almost all of the citizen soldiers, as it were, were volunteer units that, again, were organized by their states from their militia and then placed into federal service as volunteer troops under federal command. The war between the states subsequently was 
almost universally engaged in by volunteer troops on either side. The regular Army of the United States was expanded, but I don't believe it mustered more than 60,000 men out of the 2 million or so that served in the United States service during that war. And on the Confederate side, their regular army was extremely small and maybe had a few regiments out of a million men and uh, was by and large, again, a force of volunteers. In the Florida War, would Tennessee sending a contingent of volunteers be an example of this transition of mobilizing via volunteers instead of militia? That's correct. The federal government by the 1830s would just say, we need 1,000 infantry and 250 cavalry. And the governor would make the call. The governor would have the right to decide what districts of his state would provide the men. So, for example, in 1836, for Scott's campaign, they wanted an Alabama infantry regiment. Colonel William Lindsay went to Mobile and then to Tuscaloosa. What he found was that Governor Clay of Alabama had already received notice that he needed to raise 800 men for a volunteer regiment to serve in Florida for three months. So what he did is he dictated that the volunteers would be raised from the 2nd and from the 6th Division of Alabama Militia, and that they would have a muster in those division districts and if they didn't get the full number of men to volunteer, they would then have a draft. So you see, not every man among the volunteers was a volunteer, if you get my meaning. So where does this leave Army readiness at the dawn of the Second Seminole War? The Army didn't change its training just for the Florida War. They drilled these recruits till they were familiar with the school of the soldier and school of the company so that they wouldn't foul up their companies in the field when they joined them. They know how to right face, left face, basic maneuvers. They knew their basic duty. Their basic duties were based on accepted tactics of the time, but there were two schools of thought. Colonel William Worth wrote a manual for light infantry tactics, which General Winfield Scott incorporated into his overall treatise on infantry tactics. But Scott was a heavy infantry tactics man, not a light infantry tactics one. Scott's tactics do include light infantry instruction, but they're sort of vague, and they are all predicated on the idea that the unit is a heavy infantry unit that is deploying as skirmishers when needed, whereas the Army would have benefited more by a specific light infantry doctrine and manual, but they didn't see the need for that because, again, you had a million irregular troops in the militia. So let me see if I'm summarizing Scott's thinking correctly about infantry training and use, light versus heavy. If we want to have light infantry skirmish tactics, we can do that very easily, and there's a whole pool of folks that we can get. For our limited time in training, we shouldn't spend it on that. We should spend it on making a heavy infantry. If you're going to have an army, have an army, and an army is heavy infantry to go into battle. Is that about correct from the way Scott was looking at it? Well, yes, but it's about military professionalism. If you're going to pay people to be soldiers when every U.S. citizen essentially is a citizen soldier, how do you set them apart? How do you honestly go about making it clear that you need to pay these people to be soldiers when everybody in the country is keeping and bearing arms? And the heavy infantry tactic are the key. When the generals like Scott say that we can create a regular force that could potentially defeat British soldiers on the battlefield, that's who the real enemy was, the British Empire, even in the 1830s. Americans generally looked at the British slightly less hostility than what Americans viewed the Soviets in the 1980s. And while we fought interminable Indian wars, I don't think it's a stretch to point out that the majority of Americans viewed the Indian wars as sideshows that were predicated on the British. 
because the Seminoles had allied with the British in the Revolution and the War of 1812 and even after. Creek had been supported by the British in the Creek War of 1813-14, the Northwestern Indians. Wherever you have the Indian Wars, there's always the British behind the curtain, aren't they? So you can fight the Indians, and that's what we did. There's a significant part of the population that felt at the end of the day, the Indians are just a front and that the real bad guy is the British and we're going to have to fight them. We need to do it well. And remember that Scott rose to prominence because he was the only regular army officer during the War of 1812 who was able to bring regular American infantry to a level of efficiency to where they could actually defeat British infantry in a stand-up fight at the Battle of Chippewa in 1814, and nearly so at Lundy's Lane. And that made Scott's career. It's like, well, this guy can make infantry. If we give this guy money and we support him, he might be able to build infantry that could be better than anything the Europeans had. Of course, we didn't fight Europeans in that time frame, but it was considered much like our war in Iraq in 1991. I remember reading a history of the 1st Armored Division in Desert Storm. I believe there was a reference that the troops never got to fight the Soviets. The Soviet Union was in a state of collapse, but the Iraqi army was the next best thing. It was armed and equipped, and the order of battle was identical to the Soviets. Well, the Mexican army of 1845 was a European-style army. It's interesting how we look at the Mexican army. You know, it's armed with some British weapons, that's true. We say, well, they were armed with brown besses. Well, that's kind of like how we attacked Grenada and we said, hey, they're armed with Kalashnikov. See, who's really behind this? <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. The Mexican army was really more an offshoot of the Spanish army, of course, but it was still a European army in its modes, and the U.S. army defeated it. Now, General Grant, for one, as a junior officer in those battles, felt that it wasn't really a fair fight. The Mexican regular infantry was not all that well-equipped and it wasn't well-trained or well-led, and so he felt that it wasn't really that fair a fight. But the point was that if the American Army of 1812 had engaged in the war with the Mexican regulars, they might not have won the battles at Palo Alto and Buena Vista. You see? Improvement in the decades after 1815. The Army improved and refined its tactical operations. Troops practiced the manual of arms, they practiced skirmishing, they practiced the stay-in-line and fire unified volleys of the heavy infantry tactics. They practiced how to fix bayonets and charge. But they didn't do one other thing, which some would argue is the key to success in the entire undertaking. But what they didn't do is provide firing range where they could teach them not only the advantages but the disadvantages of, of common musketry fire. You know, what is an effective range for the musket? How do I level the barrel? I mean, they didn't have sights, so the only way you could really aim at a guy 100 yards or more away is to level the barrel, aim at a certain point, aim over his head, and you might hit him below his knees, this distance, that sort of thing, leveling. Well, they didn't even teach them that. So the only thing the recruits knew is from the school of the soldier that when they're ordered to aim, they just present their weapon direct in front of them at a level with their hand near their chin and fire at a level. Uh, or they would oblique to the right or left. Or once they were in skirmish or extended order, they would fire individually at whatever target presented in front of them. Again, in that case where they're in skirmish order, that's even worse because without being trained how to aim and level the musket in order to hit an individual target rather than mass firing, the soldier almost inevitably is never going to hit anything. 
the army devised means to compensate for the lack of skill of the soldier and the limitations of the musket. Some would say that they made the muskets soldier-proof. The musket itself had a 69-inch caliber bore, and the standard ball was 64 inches. So there's a little bit of, we'd say, wiggle room. This wiggle room allowed the piece to be rapidly loaded, even when fouled by a couple dozen shots worth of powder. Of course, this meant that the lack of tightness, along with the lack of rifling to spin the ball, sacrificed any accuracy the soldier might have hoped for. But in combination with his comrades in close order, they could put a lot of lead downrange fairly rapidly in a concentrated fashion, not unlike what would later be known as machine gun fire. Soldier proofing a musket had its benefits, but it could not compensate for an enemy that would not allow himself to be easily caught within the barrage of fire or for individual soldier operator error, which because of inexperience with the weapon happened all too frequently and was compounded when the soldier was under fire. That's essentially the case. In the Napoleonic Wars, that reminded me of a reference to comment by a British officer that frequently troops that entered battle and were surprised would, in the act of aiming, sometimes they'd pull the trigger when they raised their gun to aim it because they were sort of um, in a hurry. And if they're not careful, they'll reload and they'll keep doing that, literally firing the gun immediately as they raise it and shooting in the air, basically which was something that the British says, well, you got to correct that. You have to remind these guys not to do that. But uh, interesting, a comment that at Dade's battle, Pacheco, the black interpreter with Dade's command, says that when the firing commenced, he looked down the road and he saw the column, and he watched a lot of them fire their guns in the air. The line wavered, is what he says. And then Clark mentions that there was some confusion in the firing. Uh, at least some of the men's initial shot was more dangerous to the squirrels above them in the treetops than it was to the Seminoles. And that may have been one reason why Pacheco then notes that a party of Seminoles advanced, evidently, and captured him, and he was near the road. So if the soldiers' initial fire was ineffective, that may have been one reason why the Seminoles, at least at the head of the column, actually advanced, took Pacheco a prisoner and uh, maybe even Captain Frazier, because there was a reference that when his corpse was found, he was tied to a tree. Clark mentions that there was some confusion in the firing, but the men became cool enough, you know, at least those that survived the ambush. Troops got their cannon firing, and Checo withdrew with the Seminoles. The men were shattering tree trunks with canister fire, spraying the woods to the north of the column. Although the artillerymen regained their composure, the accuracy of their cannon fire in hitting Seminoles appears to have been as poor as what they accomplished by firing their muskets. This ineffectiveness remained fairly constant for the Army throughout the war. The Treaty of Fort Dade, when that was conducted in March of 1837, the Army was satisfied from discussing the war with Seminoles who came into the camps that from Dade's battle through March of 37, there hadn't been more than 50 Seminole battle casualties as far as killed. And that was significantly less than the Army reports were estimating, by the way. But General Jessup reported that he had no doubt that it was correct. And I have seen a newspaper blurb by an officer in Florida at that time who said that not only was it true that Seminoles had only suffered a few dozen fatalities in the war, but that he had received the names of every one of their dead. Unfortunately, he didn't reproduce them in the newspaper. It wasn't something the American public was interested in.
What do you think the primary cause was for the army's inability to inflict significant casualties upon the Seminole in the various battles and skirmishes that they engaged in? Was it the marksmanship? Was it the equipment itself? Was it the training or lack thereof? Or was it the tactics that they employed? A part of it is that the tactics also placed a signal reliance upon the bayonet as the primary weapon of infantry beyond even its firepower. Historians view the firepower of the small arm as fire, and then you have shock action. Today you have the hand grenade for shock and an attack. You throw hand grenades, shock the enemy, and close with them with your fire. Looking back to the 19th century, before the war between the states, you have this difference. The, some historians claim that you had fire and shock, and that the bayonet was a shock weapon. And I can agree with that, but the way the professional class of officers viewed it almost seems to me to be switched around. That they viewed the principal weapon as the bayonet, and they viewed the shock weapon as musketry. Because they knew the musketry was inaccurate, and they certainly did very little to improve it by training recruits to understand how to fire a musket. If you fired enough rounds with a smoothbore musket at a target at two, three hundred yards, you would eventually figure out how to hit that target but that was not a priority for the Army. They viewed the means of victory in battle as the bayonet charge, and as long as the troops were disciplined enough to conduct one, they were satisfied with that. And if you look at all the Seminole War battles, they usually concluded with the troops in skirmish order making bayonet attacks in open order to drive the Seminoles off the ground. Power was almost defensive, and the bayonet was the offensive weapon to with the enemy. So what did the Seminoles do in reaction to that? Well, they would run away, and then when the soldiers stopped chasing them, they would reload, keep shooting at them. Which makes sense. And these battles would become interminable. Okeechobee is the exception in the sense that the troops really were determined to conclude the war. They really, soldiers at Okeechobee, volunteers and regulars, really kind of amazes me. The, the more I read their account, the Missourians provided many depositions about the incidents of the battle. The force of General Taylor, the several hundred men that made that assault, suffered choice extraordinary casualties. Only a few hundred of those men were really seriously engaged, but they really pressed on the Seminoles hard, trying to overwhelm them. And Colonel Foster, the 4th Infantry, for one, mentions in a letter to his wife that his, his regiment, in one rank, one pace apart, essentially a skirmish or extended order, he ordered them to attack the Seminoles in the Cypress Swamp at a run and firing as they went as fast as they could. And once they got into the timber, the Seminoles broke to the right and left, but some of them didn't get out of the way. Foster says that his men left eight Seminole bodies in their wake as they passed through the timber to the beach of Lake Okeechobee. So there you have quite possibly the largest single incident of bloodshed in combat as far as fatalities for the Seminoles, seven or eight. Seminoles killed in that immediate vicinity of Foster's charge, where they really just couldn't get out of the way fast enough. The Seminoles didn't have bayonets for their rifles. Did they have any type of martial arts they could use? No, no they didn't. I've been asked this, if the Seminoles had a sort of martial arts. Not that I can see referenced historically. Their preparation to practice for war was, according to observers, uh, in the 1820s, the ball game. The Creeks and Seminoles both played the ball game, and it was a rough-and-tumble game. I recall one commentator, I believe a British gentleman, said that he understood their name for the ball game was something akin to the little brother of war. In the Seminoles you know, fighting, they usually practiced the ambush, and then they would rush 
to gain scalps, and the scalps were valuable to them uh, because it demonstrated their war capability. You see, whereas in the United States, the military men were approved of publicly for powerful demonstrations of their valor in combat. The Seminoles appreciated valor as well, but it's evident by reading some of the accounts like McKinney and Hall's description of some of the Seminole warriors they knew that a great warrior wasn't necessarily a warrior that was demonstrating valor in battle. If a warrior came back from expeditions with scalps, he could be considered a great warrior, and he may not have even acquired them from soldiers or even in battle, because there were large numbers of American civilians killed and injured during the Seminole Wars. Unfortunately, I have found that there was no major effort by the public authorities to account for all of the American citizens killed Florida and the Georgia borderlands during the Seminole War. Newspapers provide significant number of accounts, sometimes conflicting, but that's a prime research avenue. Someone wanted to go through the records of the time to find, even create a relatively accurate estimate of the number of American citizens, uh, non-combatants, women, children that were killed during the Seminole War. Seminole warfare had its peculiarities that seemed alien and sometimes barbaric to the Army and the American public, but it did have a certain logic and emotional design to it. Conversely, there were at least a few American practices that seemed alien and barbaric to Seminole eyes. One Army officer asked the Seminole warrior, you know, why didn't the Seminoles take prisoners, and why did they butcher those that came into their power, why did they mutilate the bodies and scalp them? The gentleman mentioned the Seminole warrior he questioned, replied to him with some emotion that the Seminole has no place to lay his head as a home, and he has his own ways and has to follow them. In other words, the gentleman felt that the warrior was trying to explain to him that they didn't do it because they necessarily enjoyed it any more than an American soldier enjoyed making a frontal attack against an entrenched enemy, you see. It was just a mode of warfare that was common. I have to assume that may be correct because we see that frequently when the periods of the war concluded, there would be no harm, no foul. Many of the Seminoles captured in early 1838 were sent to New Orleans, and there's a marvelous account of a wedding party among them that was allowed to walk around the down the levee from modern Port Jackson and solicit donations of money from the locals in order to buy wedding gifts for the wedding party, and that in return for the money, the Seminoles put on a dance for the people that gave the money. These are warriors that had potentially months before it sacked and burned farms and done things that we would consider unconscionable. But as Indian warfare had its own peculiarity. And then again, so did American warfare, because I'm sure the Seminoles found it odd that American physicians, when they could, would remove the heads of Seminole dead for their phrenological collection. Phrenologists would call an Indian that scalped his victims a savage and while he's removing Osceola's head, perhaps, for his own collection. Indian warfare being different also extended to the U.S. Army's allies, the Creek Indians, whom they recruited to fight the Seminoles. They fought differently and they had different incentives than soldiers had. After the Creeks were employed for a year, and they did pretty good service, but they were not under the militia laws of the United States. Because they were Indian, their approach to warfare was different from the U.S. Army. They didn't fight battles. Again, we come to that point about how the Indians view warfare. They viewed it differently. There's a criticism that the government offered the Creek volunteers they could keep any Negro slaves they captured. Often some historians and abolitionists at the time even brought it up to criticize the federal government. 
but the Creeks might have viewed that as a legitimate war measure. If you told them, we're going to pay you $6 a month for privates, we're going to send you to Florida and you're going to fight a battle where we're going to have you charge your Seminole cousins over open ground frontally while you're being shot down, they might not have volunteered. <laughs> but with the proper incentives, many things are possible. Right. I'm not saying that the Creeks were unique in that, but we do see that the Creek had been at war with the Seminoles in the past, prior to the 1830s, and before Florida was acquired by the United States. A large war party, evidently, of Coweta Creek warriors passed into East Florida and carried off a large number of Negroes back into Georgia, kept them for their own planting purposes or sold them to white people. So warfare was about plunder as much as combat for the Indians. But then again, we can also say that the same matches for white people because the whole point of the Florida War was a huge eminent domain battle over salvaging the investments already made in the territory and perchance providing incentive for more investment into the territory. Jesse Marshall, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks for joining us once again for the Seminole Wars Authority. Yes, it's been a pleasure. This podcast is copyright 2022, the Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.